0: Our reading this evening is from Luke chapter 22, verses 63, and then on to chapter 23, verses 25, and it's in 1059 in the church Bibles. That's Luke chapter 23, 22, sorry, uh, beginning at verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together. And Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean and when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction he sent him to Herod who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion I have examined him in your presence and found no basis for your charges against him Neither has Herod for he sent him back to us As you can see he's done nothing to deserve death Therefore I will punish him and then release him With one voice they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they instantly instantly demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We pray, our Heavenly Father, that as we come to look at the trial of Jesus, that that would be our song. That we would sing, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Saviour's love for me. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat as we think more about uh, this passage. One of the favourite storylines for Hollywood screenwriters is the miscarriage of justice. Uh, Depending on your age, you probably have seen films like To Kill a Mockingbird, where the main character is falsely accused of rape by a racist jury, a racist society, and he's sent to prison where he later dies. Or perhaps uh, you've seen The Shawshank Redemption, uh, a classic where Andy Dufresne, is wrongly convicted of murdering his wife and her lover, and he spends the rest of his life in a punishing jail. See, these stories, they get us into the cinema and buying the DVDs because we get angry, rightfully, at injustice. We hate it when the innocent are condemned. And what's interesting about films like this and stories like this is who shows themselves to be guilty in them. See actually it, where there 's a miscarriage of justice, you realize that it 's not the person in the dock who 's guilty, rather it 's the people who's, who are putting them there, there sorry, who are putting the person there and that 's exactly what we see in our passage this evening. See here we read luke 's eyewitness account of jesus 's trial uh, we 've been in a series in our Sunday evenings, uh, focusing on the last week of Jesus's life uh, before his death. And now we've reached the morning of Good Friday, where Jesus begins the day on trial. And and as you follow this trial, one thing becomes very clear indeed, you've probably heard as it was read out, the guilt does not lie with Jesus, but rather it is other people who show themselves to be guilty. Now, the question I want us to ask this evening is, who is it? Who's guilty of this miscarriage of justice? Now, the trial's quite long, but um, it moves through three phases. Um, First, Jesus starts off with the religious establishment. Uh, Secondly, he moves to the secular authorities, to Pilate and Herod. And then thirdly, uh, the whole of uh, all those groups, plus the people Uh, are involved in his trial. And I I want us to follow the action uh, in those three phases as we go through. On the back of your handouts, you'll see um, where we're going to go, and it'd be a great help if you could keep that passage open. It's on page 1059, and you can follow along. See, Jesus begins his trial with the religious establishment. Now, these religious types, they range in rank from the temple security guards through to the chief priests, but they all show something in common. And that is a hatred towards God's Son. Now, that hatred is more obvious with the men guarding Jesus in verse 63. They are the temple security guards. They have Jesus in their staff room and they see an opportunity to get their vengeance. You can imagine, can't you, that they've heard Jesus' words in the temple about how he has authority uh, over the temple. Or perhaps they were there the day that Jesus drove out the money changers and sellers from the temple and now the roles reverse and they've got him under their power and they think we'll teach him who's in charge. And so they begin to mock him, they hit him repeatedly, and they come up with a sick game designed to ridicule Jesus's prophetic powers. They blindfold him. They take it in turns to jab him in the face, and they say, tell us who hit you. See, here we see the heart of those who hate Jesus, unmasked. See, to them, he just becomes an object of ridicule. There's a momentary pause in the violence as Jesus gets called before the chief priests and the scribes in verse 66. And on the face of it, these leaders seem more subtle. They show some sort of desire for justice and process, they call a council, they hold an examination, but it's clear, isn't it, that it's a foregone conclusion. See, they ask Jesus if he's the Christ, that means God's king, but Jesus knows it doesn't matter what he says, their mind is already made up. Look at verse 67. If you're the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. Jesus goes on to explain who he is. He quotes from Psalm 110, a psalm that speaks of God's king. He says in verse 69, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. You think those words might be a moment to pause, to stop what they're doing. But actually, they think... They've been handed a gift. They think Jesus has just signed his death warrant. They say in verse 71, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. See, all the questions, all the religious zeal is just a cover. They thinly mask the same hatred that we see in the the guards. See, we see, don't we? The religious establishment, the guards, the leaders, they try to prove Jesus' guilt. But all they do is reveal their own guilt. They should have bent the knee to him. Instead, they put him on a phony trial with their minds made up already. Now, the shock of this is that you'd expect that these people would embrace God's Son. I mean, these are religious leaders, after all. They taught the Bible they led people in worship, they spent their lives waiting for God's Messiah, and at the end of it, they turn out to be the fiercest enemies of Jesus. Maybe that's um, one of the first times you've heard that. It's often a shock to people. Um, I sometimes find myself in conversations uh, with others uh, who aren't in church, and often the subject comes up as I explain what I do, And um, often we talk about Christianity, and and nine times out of ten, people will describe it as a religion like any others. And I normally point out to them, I say, "Do do you know who killed Jesus? It was actually the religious leaders. See, Christianity doesn't just kind of slot in as another religion, because he's the biggest, Jesus was the biggest critic of it. And it's got him killed at the end of it. Now, why does Luke include this for us this evening? Well, part of the reason is that we should be absolutely clear that Jesus is innocent. See, the reason for Jesus' death is not for any guilt on his part. It was just a plain prejudice and hatred towards God's Son. Now, we saw this a few weeks ago. You may remember if you were here for the parable of the tenants. Just have a look over the page uh, to chapter twenty. and verse 14, on page 155. See here, Luke's already told us what the motives of the religious establishment are. Do you remember this parable, verse 14? But when the tenants, that is these guys we're seeing here, saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. See, the religious leaders are motivated by Their own desires. They want the temple to themselves. They want the inheritance for themselves. And when Jesus is perceived as a threat to that, they decide to kill him. But there's another reason I think Luke includes this, and it's so that we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter the same response. See, um, in a couple of chapters' time, in Luke uh, chapter 24, uh, we're going to see there that the work of Jesus is not finished. And the news of his victory over death is to be proclaimed to the whole world. And the church, that's us, uh, are to be part of that work. And we need to know that as we take that message out, that we're going to encounter this same response from people even seeming very zealous for God. See, people can't take on Jesus today. He's not here. Uh, so they can, they, instead, they take on his people Do you know it's estimated that a quarter of a billion, that's just under the population size of the U.S., suffer persecution around the world. And Christians make up 80% of all global persecution and at the heart of it is this, a rejection of Jesus's kingship. And so we shouldn't be surprised when it comes. Uh, Back in uh, chapter 23, we move on from uh, the religious leaders and the uh, temple security guards to Jesus in the secular courts. See, um, the trial does not end there because in 23 verse 1, uh, it goes into a different phase as Jesus becomes before the secular authorities. See, the, the Jewish leaders had a lot of power, but they didn't have the power to execute Jesus. For that, they needed the signature of the Roman governor, Pilate. And so they go to Pilate with three charges. They're listed in verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. Now that first charge there, subverting our nation, uh, Jesus actually accused the leadership of uh, back in chapter 9. But now they reverse that charge and put it on him. Uh, The second charge about not paying taxes to Caesar, if you've been here in the last few weeks, you'll know it's just plainly a lie. Jesus never said that. And the third has got some validity to it. And it seems that Pilate initially sees through all their spin, and so he ignores those first two charges and questions Jesus about the third, verse 3. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Now, initially, the outcome seems more hopeful. Pilate announces in verse 4, I find no basis for a charge against this man. See, Pilate can see that Jesus is innocent, even when the leaders insist that he's done wrong. But Pilate has a weakness. Rather than saying, I've made my decision, that's it, he compromises. The leaders pressure him in verse 5, and he searches for a way to pass responsibility. And he finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, and Galilee comes under Herod's leadership, and so Pilate sends Jesus off. Rather than the trial coming to an end, it rolls on. Now, Herod, um, he's a Tetrarch, uh, which means that he owns a quarter, well, he doesn't own, he leads a quarter of the land. I believe it's this bit in purple here, uh, and this bit down here. And uh, Pilate finds out that Jesus is from this bit up here. You can't read any of that, I know, but uh, trust me, it's Galilee. Um, and so he goes off to Herod. Now, this Herod is the same Herod that killed John the Baptist, but actually, we read, when we see him here, he seems more positive towards Jesus. But we soon see that his motivation is pretty shallow. Verse 8, When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he heard from him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. See, Herod's pretty positive, but you realise it's just because he wants Jesus to do a trick. He wants a performing monkey. And so when Jesus does nothing, he keeps silent. Verse 11 over the page, we read that then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. So you may look interested, but actually Herod and his henchmen repeat the brute violence we see in the temple security guards. They mock, they insult, uh, they don't bow the knee. Instead they put Jesus in fancy dress just to ridicule the idea of him being a king. Now what's uh, interesting about this, as you come out of uh, Pilate and Herod, is that they don't show that same raw religious hatred as the leaders, but they still end up in the same place. They still end up condemning Jesus. See, like the religious leaders, they too are in the camp of showing themselves to be guilty. See, it's their failure to recognize Jesus for who he is that gets them there. See, I'm Luke kind of presents Herod and Pilate uh, a bit like um, a sped-up version of where a decision about Jesus takes you. See, most of us, um, if we make a decision about Jesus, there will be significant impact, uh, there'll be a significant impact on our life, but for the most part, the consequences aren't seen until a long time uh, afterwards. But for Pilate and Herod, it's it's like the fast-forward button has been pressed. So we see their attitude to Jesus, and we see where that attitude takes them in ultra-rapid time. See, in Pilate, we see someone who compromises, who has um, some place for Jesus. He's asked the questions, but really he fears people more than God. See, I guess Pilate didn't get up that day intending to kill Jesus, but his weakness cost him, because he was more loyal to peer pressure than to Jesus. See, Pilate is a warning to us, isn't he, that uh, agnosticism isn't an option. You can't just sit on the fence forever with Jesus. We can think that we're indifferent, that we can kind of not against Jesus, not for him, but Pilate shows us that that is where, this is where the decision will end up. You end up on a different side to Jesus. See, Herod, on the other hand, is different to Pilate. He's um, curious about Jesus. He can see something interesting about Jesus. But Herod wants Jesus on his terms. He wants a Jesus he can keep in his pocket and take out when he needs something. And so when Jesus is silent, and when Jesus doesn't dance to Herod's tune, you see the real heart come out. See, Herod warns us, about the danger of coming to Jesus for what we can get. Because when Jesus doesn't give what we want, perhaps an unanswered prayer, perhaps an unexpected turn in life, we end up dismissing him like Herod. See, the secular courts, like the religious courts, in their condemnation of an innocent man, show themselves to be guilty because they too won't recognise Jesus for who he is. So is there any hope in this final course as uh, Jesus moves through to the final phase of his trial? Well, it does get much more uncomfortable here because here the guilt comes much closer to home. See, um, in, in this section Luke expands the net to include not only the secular authorities, not only the religious authorities, but also the people. Have a look at verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. It's a very small detail, that, but it's massively important, because here we see everyone against Jesus. It's like you've divided the whole of humanity, and on one side stands the lonely figure of Jesus, and on the other, every single man and woman. And Pilate announces the formal verdict in verse 14. He said to them, you've brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and I found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Now, interestingly here, as a a little side point, I find this interesting anyway, but um, as a little side point, there were seven stages to Roman trials. Uh, There would begin, uh, a a verdict like this would begin with an announcement of the arrest, the charges, uh, the decision that's been made, some other bits, and then the outcome. And it's just a little detail that, but it just shows us that Luke is actually recording the eyewitness material because his verdict recorded here matches exactly to those seven stages in a Roman trial. But despite The process being followed, despite the verdict of innocence, Pilate's weakness presents itself again. Because Pilate, instead of showing leadership, instead offers the crowd a consolation prize. He offers that Jesus is beaten in verse 16. And it's like the crowd sense a weakness. It's like they know they've got the foot in the door and if they just prise it open a bit more, they can get what they want. And so they demand more in verse 20. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them. Why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he should be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. Mob rule wins out in the end. Pilate's love for peer pressure means that Jesus is killed on the altar of political expediency. The most evil act in the history of humanity is carried out as God's innocent king is killed. Those crowds were the same crowds that just days before were shouting Hosanna to Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. And now those same throats shout crucify, crucify. And of course this is not just something we can blame on others. We can't point the finger at one group or one time or one people. It's not just the religious elite. It's not just the secular authorities. It's everyone. The man, the woman in the street. All of us. If we were there we'd be in the same crowd as well. I found that song How Deep the Father's Love a sobering reminder every time I sing it those words that say, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. But there is one more twist in this trial, because Jesus is not the only one on trial that day. There is another, he's is, is almost uh, easy to miss, he, he's called Barabbas. And Luke tells us in verse 19 that Barabbas has been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder. Barabbas is actually guilty. And not only that, did you notice that Barabbas is guilty for the very charge that they level against Jesus? Barabbas has committed rebellion, and that's exactly what they accuse Jesus of. And in an ironic twist, the crowd not only condemned Jesus, but they called for Barabbas' release in verse 18. With one voice they cried out, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Now, when you look more closely at this, you realize that Luke is showing us something vitally important about Jesus' death. Where do you see this? Well, first of all, Barabbas actually means, his name means son of the father. And so the people are calling for the murder of Jesus, the true son of the father, while calling for the release of a guilty son of the Father. Secondly, um, you would have noticed that Barabbas is treated as, is guilty, but treated as innocent, while Jesus is innocent, but treated as guilty. See, not only that day was Jesus condemned falsely for rebellion and walks to the cross, but a man who was condemned rightly for rebellion walks free. See, Luke is showing us that Jesus' death is a substitute. Yes, this trial is a miscarriage of justice. Yes, it reveals the guilt of humanity. Yes, it proves Jesus is innocent. But the trial also shows us that Jesus is doing it for a reason. He is condemned so that guilty people like Barabbas, like you, like me, can walk free. See, so as you look at this trial, you realise from what we've seen about Jesus that he could have stopped here at any moment. As he sat blindfolded, of course, he knew exactly who was hitting him. He could have lashed out. As he faced the questions from the council, he could have shot to police his, their flawed logic. He'd done it before. As he faced Pilate and Herod, he could have demonstrated his power over them in an instant, but he doesn't. He stays silent. He lets the verdict fall and this is why because he knows this is the only path the only way that the guilty can go free. Imagine what it must have been like for Barabbas as he sat in the cell that morning. Barabbas as he sat there he knew he'd been caught he knew that the Romans used crucifixion for rebels he knew that all that awaited him was the nails the agonizing death, and after that, the judgment of God. But then he hears news that he's going to be released. And in the confusion, he asks people, why? Why am I being released? And someone says to him, well, it's because Jesus of Nazareth is being crucified instead of you. Imagine the relief. Imagine the life change for Barabbas. But that is what Jesus has done to every single one of his people. See, without him, we're like Barabbas. We're guilty, and only death awaits us. But Jesus steps into our place. He chooses to be condemned so that we can walk free. The rest of that song I mentioned earlier, Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to confess that we too, like these different authorities, like the people, would condemn Jesus. But we thank you, our gracious Heavenly Father, that the Lord Jesus stepped in, to be condemned for the guilty. We pray for us, Father, who trust in his work on the cross. We pray that we'd be encouraged by this truth. And we pray for us, Father, who doubt that work, that you would encourage us, you would keep us confident in the death of your Son. Please, Father, work in us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.